But uh, we are in 2 Timothy today, and as we're, the, as we're flipping to chapter 2, uh, you know, we just covered verse 2. You know, uh, sometimes I like the, the real fancy preachers, you know, they, they call the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, you know, 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy, and uh, of course, that would be 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, all right? So pretty easy memory verse, but it, it's a really key verse for discipleship that we're speaking about with these home groups and rolling into them. And, and uh, you know, he, he, the Apostle Paul, would tell Timothy, and the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so that's part of just our vision with discipleship is, you know, um, men in my life and many men and women in your lives have, have poured into us the gospel, have poured into us doctrinal truth, have poured into us the kingdom of God. And now we get to turn and we get to pour into you all and then encourage you, hey, be looking for somebody that you can commit these things to and that they could go and teach others also. And so we studied that a few weeks ago. If you were not here, you can uh, uh, get online and listen. And I actually edited that sermon and put it online last week. And we didn't get it started until about two to five minutes into it. And I was yelling at Ken Curvin in the message. I don't know if you remember that part of the message where I yelled at, as I was kidding with him. But that's the first thing you'll hear if you listen to it online is, Ken, just be quiet or something, you know. And Kind of need some context behind it. But, um, but yes, we are in 2 Timothy 2, and verse 2 is wonderful in being urged to be a disciple and to make disciples. And then um, we have this context with the book of Paul's final letter to his predecessor. His final letter is he is going to be passing the torch on to his faithful child in the faith, Timothy, who will then... Uh, be raising up men to pass the torch on to when he departs as well. And so as we get into the word, uh, let's read it together. And uh, I brought a different Bible today that doesn't have my ribbon in it, so give me a sec here. I can't multitask. I can't talk and flip at the same time. Anybody else there? Nope. You're all great multitaskers. Every man in here is a liar, and you know it. Okay. <laughs> but we're going to be looking at... Uh, Verse 8 through verse 13 today. You guys want to stand with me and we'll just read the word of God. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So, Lord, you've been working in our body in sweet ways, God. As John Stott said, this book of First and Second Timothy, they ought to be taught 
It's so important to be taught in this day and age, God, to have doctrine solidified in the church in these last days, to have leadership uh, charged and exhorted to toe the line and to preach the true gospel, uh, to be making disciples and to be uh, raising up these followers of yours who will raise up followers as well. And so, Lord, we just pray that as we come and we bow our hearts before your word, that you would shape us and change us, that you would give us a distaste for the things of the world that are distracting us and that are causing us to fall into the pit. And Lord, we pray that you, Lord, would be even more beautiful to us by the end of this study. You would be even more glorious uh, and that anything else that would be a rival competing throne in our hearts uh, would just be put to shame compared to your beauty. And we would give you all the praise, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So not only does 2 Timothy 2.2 urge Timothy to take the things that he heard Paul teach him in Bible studies and midweek studies and small groups, home fellowships, house to house, late at night, guys are falling out of windows because they fell asleep in these late night Bible studies, I mean... You know, it really was the Calvary Chapel movement, you know, uh, going on back there in the book of Acts. Uh, And, you know, our heritage today as well. Lots of wonderful time spent with each other, soaking in the word of God, applying it to our lives, repenting of our sin, and uh, going out and telling the world of how wonderful Jesus is. And with that, Timothy enjoyed those special times with his teacher, Paul, and he would go and he would teach others also. That goes on to tell us in verse 3 through 7 that we studied last week that the life of discipleship brings with it suffering. You may remember that. It's kind of an interesting transition going from teaching men who will teach others also. And verse 3 says, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So the life of discipleship, it's a life of suffering. It's a life of uh, just rough stuff because where people are there's hard things and immediately what paul and timothy would be going through would be persecution because you're teaching the truth and you're conveying the truth of the gospel a gospel that confronts us in our idolatry a gospel that confronts us in our immorality a gospel that confronts us in our worldview a gospel that isn't content with just letting us go along being deceived by the world and worshiping other idols of pleasure and materialism. A gospel that calls us to repent and to put our trust into something even more beautiful, something more satisfying, something more eternal. That something is really someone. It's Jesus and the kingdom of God. And the world doesn't like that. The world doesn't like that in that message you tell them that you will never be sufficient in your own strength, in your own heritage in your own pedigree in your own religiosity in your own spiritualism in your own way you'll never be sufficient to satisfy the righteous requirements of god and to inherit the kingdom of god you'll never be able to do it on your own and so you will need to humble yourself as a little child and put your trust in the one that's always been sufficient and did it for you that flies in the face of our culture that thinks we can make it on our own. We can do it our own way. You know, this is my interpretation and all that 
jazz that will land a person in hell. And because we're preaching that gospel and because we're speaking those hard things into the lives of the people around us, they reject, they spit, they mock, they harm, they beat, and they kill. And they think that by killing that they are putting, you know, to silence those words of confrontation. When the word of God says and experience confirms the blood of the martyrs is only seed. It just spreads it even more. It's like kicking a bonfire and watching the spark spread to that dry grass and watching the wildfire grow even more. And so with that being said, making a disciple, is, it's, it's really the call to suffering. Suffering like a good soldier. We talked about that last week. The three occupations of a Christian. A soldier that's not worried about suffering, that must endure it. A soldier that isn't entangled with the affairs of this life, but rather wants his life to please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. The second occupation was an, a competing athlete who knows that he must compete according to the rules of the game if he is going to get that crown. And the third occupation is that hardworking farmer, laboring, sowing seed, tending the flock, working hard, not much glory, First to partake of the fruits of his labor. A soldier, an athlete, a farmer. And verse 7 tells us in summary, Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Now, that could be talking about consider these three occupations. One having suffering, one having a, a prize, one having a, a fruit of the yield. Consider that, have understanding could be talking about what we're moving into now. Basically, bottom line is, Lord, give us understanding in all of it, right? Uh, give us understanding in verse 8, where Paul says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. John Stott said, The human memory is notoriously fickle. It is possible to forget even one's own name. And I'm only moving up to 37 years old now, and I got to tell you, sometimes I'm already forgetting my age. I'm already at that spot where I'm like, oh, now I'm moving down in age all of a sudden as I remember. I'm 35. It's, it's a wonderful year, you know. Um, and so, you know, you get it. The human memory is notoriously fickle, and how often we forget the main things that undergird the faith that is so eternal, that is so important, that is so valuable, that, that men and women's eternal souls uh, hang in the balance upon, that, that the glory of God for eternity, uh, you know, whether these men and women will give him the glory that is due his name, or whether they will continue worshiping idols and, and perishing in the wrath of God. And so it's important to remember these important things that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Now, as I was studying this, just one of my first thoughts was, you've got Paul the Apostle writing a letter to Timothy, who's known Paul since he was 15 years old. He's been entrusted with radical ministry of just the region of Ephesus. He's got this pastoral training school. You know, he's like Paul's right-hand man, his predecessor, he's inheriting this ministry, this, you know, there's like this apostolic succession going on, 
And Timothy knows the gospel. Timothy knows that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And yet, I think it's an old song. It's just coming to me now. Back in the 90s, I think it was like for him or something like that. And how they sang, we need to get back to the basics of life. Anybody? Nobody? I'm really aging myself. You don't know, Amy. You do. You do. You don't. You do. Okay, she does. Okay. Nobody for him, 1996, you know, Caleb. Wow. Okay. I don't listen to that station either. I'm more of a CD kind of guy. But we need to get back to the basics of life. We need to remember these doctrines of the faith, even if we're talking to one another as elders and of past, as pastors, as longtime friends who've been in the same home group forever. Don't forget. Don't forget the gospel. Don't forget those underpinnings of the gospel. Don't forget the, the rebar and the concrete of the foundation of our faith. The deity of Jesus. The messiahship of Jesus. The death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. It's good today to remember the resurrection. The resurrection, not only the best proved fact in all history, Many mighty men and women of great intellect and knowledge in great status and spheres of influence in cultures throughout the centuries. People who were atheists who said, you know what, I'm sick of hearing about this dumb Christian faith and they're confronting me in my worldview and they talk about this risen Jesus and, you know, once and for all I'm going to set out and prove that they're wrong and that, you know, the Christian faith is just, you know, we're just going to make this. Jesus is dead still. And if Jesus is dead, then just give it up. Let's just live however we want to. And these lawyers and these judges and these journalists for big newspaper companies, they go out and they do their investigating. A guy like Lee Strobel, he even, he even went out, his wife had become a born-again Christian. He hated that idea. He was being robbed of his bride of his youth. And so he went out specifically to prove that Jesus is dead. He was just a man and that let's get back to life as we know it. And as he was trying to prove his wife wrong, he ended up finding out that Jesus really was risen from the dead. Therefore, all of his claims about being God and Messiah were true, and that demanded surrender to his lordship. And so as we see that that's just the case for anyone who's a fair inquirer, they'll find Jesus to be true. Of course, that coupled with the, the important fact of the Holy Spirit drawing men unto himself. It's good to talk about the resurrection. One practice that I have had in reading through the New Testament is every time I see the resurrection mentioned, I put a little R. Just put a little R. And I find that throughout the book of Acts, almost every message of the gospel that's preached, the resurrection is preached. All throughout the New Testament and the epistles, the resurrection was was. Uh, it led to other important doctrinal truths as well, especially things for the life and practice of the Christian. And here's one place where we find that. We have discipleship and suffering and, and uh, allegiance and dedication and competing according to the rules and hard work with the rewards of the labor. And all of it is tied into the gospel. Hey, just remember that Jesus isn't dead as we're talking about all these things, that Jesus is alive. He's resurrected. Donald Guthrie said, 
It's not so much the resurrection as a fact of history, important as that is, but the risen Christ as the central factor of the Christian's ongoing experience. For Paul, the resurrection is the most prominent Christian truth containing, as it does, the guarantee of all other aspect of the work of Christ. So everything that we're talking about as a church, everything about discipleship making has to do with what Jesus has accomplished, not only in his perfect life here on earth, where he lived the perfect life, he was tempted in all points as we were, yet he never sinned. And because he never sinned, he was the spotless lamb that, was, that died and his blood atoned for our sin. As he was buried for three days in the ground, he rose from the dead, just like he said he would many times. He gave warning to it. We just in youth group this week studied about that, that he told them, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Don't worry about it. I'm going to rise from the dead. No one was listening to him. That was just so far above their pay grade. They're like, so, you know, when we're going to eat, you know, that's all I think about too, you know, and, uh, and yet he rose from the dead, just like he said he would. And in one of these great resurrected, resurrected Jesus passages, like the great commission, before he says, go make disciples of all the earth, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Because I lived the perfect life, I was obedient, I died a sacrificial death, my death was truly propitiatory and sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God against sinners, I was found to be right, I rose from the dead, and he's going to ascend into heaven and be welcomed back into glory at the right hand of the Father. So he has the authority to call the Pauls, to call the Timothys, to commit these things to faithful men who will commit these things to faithful men because he's alive, because he's been found to be true. So it's important all the time, every time you're with your friends, talk about Jesus's resurrection. Talk about him being alive. It's one of the most encouraging things we can do. The apostles did it. Every time they wrote, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. It's encouraging. The Phillips translation says, Remember always, as the center of everything, Jesus Christ, a man of human ancestry, yet raised by God from the dead, according to my gospel. You'll notice that it says that he was the son of David. Why, why would Paul put that in there? I mean, Timothy wasn't even a Jew. You know, his, he was part Jew. He was part Greek. So, you know, he's kind of got this hybridness. And so... You know, messiahship, he, he gets it, but he's also a little bit disconnected. And yet it was important for him, being of the seed of David, uh, that Jesus was of the seed of David, because it speaks of his human ancestry. The Gospel of Luke is all about Jesus being fully man. That's an important part of Christology and understanding Jesus. But not only was he of human ancestry, he was the messiah the savior of the world. It was prophesied that the son of David was going to be uh, the savior of the world, the Messiah. I'm reading through 2 Samuel right now, and I just read about the covenant of God to David, and that upon the throne of David, there will always be a king who will bring life to the whole world. 
That promise still stands to this day. There's a throne of David. There's a nation of Israel. And we look forward to the coming Messiah who will fulfill that prophecy for all of eternity. Romans chapter 1, if you'll flip there with me, I believe we also have it on the screen. It says that concerning the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So we see that human ancestry part of Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's our Lord. He's born through the line of David according to the flesh. So he's fully man, yet he's also the Son of God. So he's fully, fully God. He's declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. And how was he declared to be the Son of God by power? By the resurrection from the dead. So we have kind of this, this beautiful broth, if you will, with all of these ingredients of Jesus being the Son of God, being fully Lord and Master, being fully Messiah of the seed of David, declared to be the Son of God, risen from the dead. Important doctrinal truths to always be remembered and always be spoken uh, between each one of us. He's a risen Savior, is what Paul is getting across to Timothy. If he's not alive, then he's bogus. And DJ and I were having coffee this week, and DJ said one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. He said, you know, as he's talking to people out in the world and sharing the gospel with people, uh, he's, he encourages them to think about these things. As C.S. Lewis said, Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or he's Lord. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. Because he said he was God. He said, I'm going to prove I'm God by rising from the dead at this time. Now, if you know anybody out there who's telling you that they are God, and that they're going to be killed, and they're going to rise from the dead, and if they've been killed so far, if they haven't risen from the dead yet, they straight loco, Okay? They're crazy. They're liars. They were cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, all right? And hopefully you had some sort of discernment about that, or I'm kind of concerned about you as well. But anyways, I mean, we people, we're, we're crazy, so we need as much help as we can get, all right? But Jesus claimed these things and so much more. But he said, like, I'm putting all my chips in. I'm staking all my claims on the resurrection from the dead. It will be my vindication, He's either a liar or he's a crazy guy or he really did rise from the dead and he's got to be Lord. Lord of heaven, Lord of earth, Lord of your heart. He's worthy of that status of your absolute and complete surrender to him. Not only as savior, which is what seed of David speaks of, being saved from your sins. I prophesy over Jesus's life that his name will be Jesus, the angel said. For he shall save his people from their sins. Not only does he save you and, and he's your savior, but the Bible says that he also must be your Lord, your master, the ruler of your life, the ruler of your heart. It's been said you dare not have anything less than a divine Jesus. You dare not have anything less than a human Jesus. 
fully God, fully man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. There's so much wrapped up in him being fully man, as Luke would tell us. Man with emotions. We'll go back even farther. Man with a mother. Man with a genealogy. Man with hunger pains. Man with thirsting pains. Man suffering. Man sweating drops of blood. Luke was all about, as a physician, detailing the humanness of Jesus who had blood that could be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And yet no man could be sinless. No man could live a sinless life. And so also this man must be fully God. Part of the mysteries of it all, isn't there? Fully God who could live and obey this life in what's called the hypostatic union. Fully God, fully man, fully Savior, Fully Messiah, fully God, fully Lord. Hughes and Chappelle write that a memory of Jesus' resurrection, therefore, engenders a perpetual Easter season in the lives of his children. Now, that doesn't mean just leave those Easter baskets out all year long with the little fake grass and, like, hide candies all over. By the way, if you've ever done those hunts, you know, like a year later, you're like, hey, where'd this come from? Well, you're out mowing the lawn. It's in the brick. You know, you're like, well, might as well. Had cellophane around it, so we're probably good. I would never do that, but I've seen Lindsay do it a time or two. Um, <laughs> but we can live in this perpetual, you know, Resurrection Sunday is so great. It's such an exciting day here at our church. It's such an exciting day for our lives. We celebrate. We dress up. We're, we're just thrilled to remember the resurrection, but... But as Paul speaks to Timothy, we should have this perpetual Easter celebration in our heart. Hughes goes on to say, remember Jesus' messiahship. Memory of Jesus' messiahship invites the believer to see Jesus as the culmination of God's plan of salvation and to bow before him as king. The resurrection and the messiahship makes up the essential gospel. When your tank is empty as a Christian, remember that there's an empty tomb and there's an occupied throne. We can endure anything. We can endure sufferings. We can live by the rules of that athlete and we can labor like that hardworking farmer if we have sufficient motivation. What is our sufficient motivation? A lofty view and vision of the person and work of Jesus. This will keep us in the war. It will keep us on the track within our lines. And it will keep us working on the farm. Now Timothy is told that this story of Jesus. The son of David risen from the dead. Is according to my gospel. Did anybody else notice that as we read it? According to my gospel. I love that. I always have. That Paul takes the gospel story and makes it personal. He takes ownership of it. This whole Jesus, son of David, risen from the dead, Savior and Lord, Paul owned that. It was his gospel. And I would ask you today, is it your gospel? It's my gospel. Talk about that. I went out preaching my gospel today. Lord, help me to share my gospel I want to own it. I want it to sink deep into my heart. 
And as Paul did that, he said, this gospel, my gospel, is something that I suffer trouble, verse 9, as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Notice there's a direct correlation between my suffering and my gospel. Where there's a lack of suffering for Jesus, there's probably a lack of gospel for Jesus. When there's a lack of suffering in your life, there's probably a lack of preaching in your life. And so we're encouraged. There's no condemnation in that. We're just encouraged, like Timothy, by Paul today, to not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, as he says back in chapter 1. Or like a soldier, be ready to suffer, as he says in verse 3. He says, I'm so ready to suffer. In fact, I've been suffering. I've been suffering like an evildoer. And that word evildoer, it speaks, I've been suffering misfortune and distress like a common criminal. That's what it speaks of, that evildoer. It speaks of a common criminal. You guys remember when Paul got saved, his name was Saul. He was on the road to Damascus and he went blind and Ananias was told that he was to go and minister to him. He said, not so, Lord. Saul's throwing everybody in prison. And the Lord said, hey, I've shown Saul how many things he must suffer for my sake. And now we see that in this part of Paul's life, he's living it. He's suffering. He's already been shown that this would be his lot in life, the privilege of suffering for the gospel, something that our brothers and sisters in North Korea, in Nigeria, in China read about my gospel, suffering for my gospel. Recently on Facebook and YouTube, you may have noticed the videos of the church in China that was invaded and, you know, forced to shut down. And the preacher was like, I've had enough of this. And he just got the microphone. He just started preaching the gospel even more. And the authorities didn't know what to do. And what that did was it just caused a spark to go all throughout China where people just took to the streets with their loudspeaker systems and just started preaching the gospel open air. And where the government thought that they could quench the preaching of the gospel, suffering and persecution only causes it to spread. It's biblical, and it's an experience shows it's true. And so I would encourage all of us not to be afraid of the preaching of the gospel, the suffering that would come from it, because it will turn out for the furtherance of the gospel. As Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 1, here he is in prison, and he writes to the Philippians that I want you to know, brethren... That the things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so just as it's true, there, uh, you know, with the church in China... This is our heritage as Christians, that the more we suffer, the more people have confidence in our chains. As we suffer not as evildoers, but as preachers of the gospel, more people have boldness to go do the same thing. So we pray as we're just in 2 Timothy in this season, that we would have boldness to share the gospel, to suffer for the gospel. Of course, that would lead to the spread even more of the gospel. And, and this great statement at the end of the verse, verse 9 Paul's like, I might be in chains, but the word of God is not chained. Boy, that's a motivational statement right there. I remember reading that as a high school kid and just, you know, 
It's not chained. So what am I doing being silent about it? The gospel isn't chained. So why do we keep it on a leash? As Romans says, it is the power of God unto salvation. I remember, I don't know who quoted it, but I remember from you know, years ago, someone saying that you don't have to defend the gospel, just unleash the gospel. Yes, we can reason with people. There's a part for that. But in our reasoning, share the gospel and let that seed, let that, let that uh, power of God unto salvation do that work. It's not by human wisdom or persuasive words. It's the gospel that is the power. Paul didn't view the gospel like a little water pistol, but like a bazooka. Not defending, just unleashing it. Letting it do the work. As Romans 10, 17 says, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So let's speak out the word of God. We speak, we reason, we persuade. But you know what? Then that guy and that gal have got to go home and set their head on their pillow and we let the Holy Spirit do the work of thinking about those scriptures and thinking about those arguments and just letting the Holy Spirit just do that work of, of leading people to salvation. Martin Luther said, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So verse 10 tells us, therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So I'm suffering as an evil, as a common criminal for the gospel. I'm in chains, and you can just, as he's writing, there's just the chingle, 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 you know, of the chains. He's in the fetters, and as he's writing, yeah, but you know what? The word's still going out. It's still spreading. I'm in, a, I'm in a prison, and it's still moving across the globe. It's not chained, and so I'm happy to suffer all these things. I'll endure it for the sake of the ones that God's calling, for the sake of the elect, for the sake of the chosen ones. Here we get to a beautiful verse that shows God's divine sovereignty part of salvation. That he calls, that he chooses men and women from before the foundations of the world. He elects them. He predetermines them according to the forecounsel of his own will for the praise of his glorious grace. And that is a true part of the gospel. That is a true doctrine of the Christian faith. And at the same time, you have this Whosoever will, part of the word of God. Whosoever will believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And some guys think they've got it figured out more than others, but at the end of the day, I think it was Lewis, C.S. Lewis again, that said, you know what? God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, they are two pillars that go up and somewhere in before the throne of God, they connect, you know? And they don't, these ideas don't war against each other, that some are chosen, yet everybody is called. And, and you know, like, how does that work? I think it was D.L. Moody that said, you know, we'll get to heaven one day and we'll walk through the gates. And on one side of the gate, you know, we'll see whosoever will. And then we'll walk through and we'll look on the other side of the gate and it'll say chosen from before the foundations of the world. But you know what I love about this verse and as we talk about suffering and preaching the gospel and not being afraid, is that we get to preach the gospel 
And we don't need to stress about the person and their receiving of it. And because God is sovereign and he is the one that is calling them according to the counsel of his will. And so we can just rest in that the Lord is doing the work. He's the one that makes the seed germinate and grow. And the farmer's the one that just casts it out into the soil. So we pray for hearts, for cultivated hearts, that it would be fertile ground and that the rocks and the thorns and that a big bird net's nest, uh, net will be over so the birds can't come down. Just for like these perfect environments for casting of the seed of the gospel so that it will grow. I've just been praying this all this week within my spheres of these people that I've got in my life that don't yet know Jesus and have surrendered to the gospel. And I just trust the Lord that all my job is is to just keep sharing the gospel. And the Lord in his sovereignty is going to work of granting men and women repentance, working on his end of things. And we can be prayerful towards that end as well. It says that, these elect would also obtain salvation. Look at verse 10, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So they're saved and they're in Jesus and with it comes eternal glory. In Ephesians 3.13, Paul says that his suffering is for their glory. It's for the Ephesians' glory. In 2 Corinthians 1 chapter 6 Paul says, if we're afflicted, it's for your consolation, which means like comfort. When I'm afflicted, I'm taking it on my back so that you will advance in glory and grace. Goes on to say, uh, it's for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we're comforted, it's for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will be partakers of the consolation. David Platt said the doctrine of election did not make Paul's preaching the gospel unnecessary, but rather it made it essential. God has ordained that people find salvation in Christ by means of gospel presentation. Some people will believe if you will preach the gospel faithfully. I love that from Platt. You know, David Platt had a great hand in the missions movement in our church. Great evangelist, great missionary. And so encouraging as we read about the elect getting saved, some people, you got to believe it, some people will believe if you will preach the gospel faithfully. And I love listening to Alistair Begg, and he was talking about God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility. And in a sermon, he actually brought up Calvary Chapel, you know, and he says, you know, Calvary Chapel, guys, it seems like all you need is a pair of jeans and a Bible to be a pastor in that, you know, church, you know. And I'm like, hey, you know, that's kind of true, you know. And, uh, and he says, but these guys, they go out there and they preach the gospel and they actually believe that people are going to get saved as they hear the gospel. And he says, you know what? Reformed guys need more of that. That we're going to be preaching the gospel and guys and gals are actually going to get saved. So let's open up our mouths saying, you know what? This guy very well might be elect that I'm talking to right now. And he may get saved. Let's be excited about that. Verse 11. Where are we at? We're at four minutes and 43 seconds left. 
This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. These faithful sayings, faithful sayings before the word of God was written down in the New Testament, the church had these faithful sayings. They were like hymns of the day. Faithful saying, don't miss it, essentially is what Paul would say. And he's going to give us four if statements. Four if statements. Kind of reminds me of a recent poem I heard from Rudyard Kipling. It's actually called If. And he's writing it to his son in the late 1800s. He says, if you can dream and not make dreams your master. If you can think and not make thoughts your aim. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there's nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings and never lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything in it. And, which is more, you'll be a man, my son. So Kipling wrote this to his son who was probably just born at about that time. And that young man would grow up to be 18 years old at the time of World War I. And he was not allowed into the army because of his poor eyesight. But Kipling fought for his son to get into the battle, to get into the fight. And as he rose through the ranks and went into the battle, he would die in trench warfare and his body would be lost, not to be found again until 1992. But we see that this John Kipling, or my boy Jack, as Rudyard would call him, listened to his dad's virtuous encouragement to character that all began with if, if, then you'll be a man, my son. And we have similar statements within the scriptures that begin with if. They're, in this case, four pithy statements. They are big doors that hinge on these little hinges. Pithy statements like, don't sweat the small stuff. Or like Theodore Roosevelt said, we must all either wear out or rust out, every one of us. My choice is to wear out. And you can probably think of others that are easy to remember. And, and these are small and easy to remember as well. These four epigrams or pithy statements. And they begin with, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Incredible New Testament principle that you read of, especially in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. That when we come to Christ, we die with Christ through faith. We die with him. And yet, because he didn't stay dead, he rose from the dead. We also rise to him and have this resurrection life and power to us. 
if we died with him, we'll live with him. Many Christians are so excited and they focus on this living with him, but they forgot the if. If we also die to self, die to this world, die to the flesh, as Galatians chapter 1 says, crucified with Christ, nevertheless we now live. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All believers are called to a life of dying. That's encouraging, isn't it? But we shall also live with him. Look at verse 12. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. This passage, this book is all about endurance. If we endure. In 2 Timothy, there's seven times that the word endure is used. And that's second only to Hebrews, where there are ten mentionings of endurance. Endure, 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 endure. That's all seven in one right there for you in case you've missed the last Sundays and you missed the ones to come. If we endure, we will reign with him. And what a beautiful thing that, that God in his grace has given us a wonderful privilege and prize of reigning. You read, I think, uh, who was it? Johnny praying about Revelation chapter two and the messages to the churches and how those churches, some of them were given that promise that if you endure, I'll let you sit with me on my throne. A Christian life is not a series of 100-yard sprints engaged in intermittently. It's a cross-country marathon that you run and you run and you run and you endure. If you've ever had the privilege of reading Pr Pilgrim's Progress, they have a child's version now with pictures, and I would recommend that one because the old English is a little bit tough. But as Christian, the man's name is, gets to the sloth of despond and his journey. He's with a guy named Pliable, and he's in a mucky mess. He's in a swamp. They're going the right direction. They're on the right road, but they're wallowing on the trail. And, and uh, Pilgrim writes this. Now I saw in my dream that just as they had ended this talk, they drew nigh to a very miry sloth that was in the midst of the plain. And they, began, and they being heedless did both fall suddenly into the bog. The name of the sloth was Despond. Here, therefore, they wallowed for a time, being grievously bedaubed, look that one up later, with the dirt. And Christian, because of the burden that was on his back, began to sink in the mire. Then Pliable said, Ah, neighbor Christian, where are you now? And Christian said, truly, I do not know. Pliable said, at this, Pliable began to be offended and angrily said to his fellow, is this the happiness that you've told me all this while of? If we have such ill speed at our first settings out, what may we expect between this and our journey's end? May I get out again with my life? You shall possess the brave country alone for me. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire on that side of the sloth, which was next to his own house. So away he went, and Christian saw him no more. And so the story, the, the great parable, really, the great metaphor of the Christian life that's in Pilgrim's Progress shows that Pliable so easily lost endurance when the hard times came. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you a heart that's evil, full of unbelief in departing from the living God. 
But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any one of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we've become partakers of Christ. Here's the if statement. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. If we deny him, our text goes on to say, he will also deny us. If we deny him, he will deny us. The gospel speak of this in Matthew 10, 32. You know, as Paul writes in a day and age where all you had to do is put a pinch of incense on Caesar's altar and say, Caesar is Lord, and you'd be fine. You could just go back to worshiping Jesus and you just did that little pinch and pinch to grow an inch, you know, that's it. But the Lord would know and you would know. And so this is an exhortation to, to not denial, but to faithfulness. If we deny him, he also will deny us. John Calvin says, if we, or rather this doctrine has more need of being meditated upon than of being explained, for the words of Christ are perfectly clear. If we deny him, he will deny us. Worship team, come on up. The final verse, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. As the saintly Samuel Rutherford, who spent years in the Aberdeen prison, said, Often and often I have in my folly torn up my copy of God's covenant with me. But blessed be his name. He keeps it in heaven safe, and he stands by it always. Now that's great truth. When we're faithless, he's faithful. But is there context that we need to read with this because it goes on to say he cannot deny himself so what is he being faithful to let me read something helpful as we close again from platt from his commentary and i found it helpful and something i was meditating on this week what do we do with this statement if we are faithless he remains faithful how are we to understand this expression Some take verse 13 to refer to the idea that even if we turn away from Jesus, he will not turn away from us. Others find this to mean that if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful to his own character, which in this case would include rejecting the faithless. One group sees this verse as a verse of comfort, and the other sees this as a word of warning. And while it is certainly true that God is not fickle and his faithfulness is new every morning for believers who have moments like Peter of denying Christ. That is not what this hymn, this faithful saying, appears to be saying. I think the best way to understand the hymn, though I hold to this position loosely, is to take it as a warning for those who persist in a state of faithlessness. These statements appear to be parallel, pointing in this direction, If we deny him is parallel to if we are faithless and he will also deny us is parallel to he remains faithful. He will deny us. Helps us understand this phrase about his faithfulness. God is faithful not just to extend blessing to those with genuine faith, but he's also faithful to his warnings. However one wishes to interpret this last phrase of the hymn, it is clear and wonderfully encouraging that he cannot deny himself. God cannot act contrary to his nature. He is faithful 
He is the God of mercy and of justice. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray.